Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, brother. How's everybody doing? Little one person's doing good. It's good to uh, be together again. Uh, by way of announcements, and I, we're going to put this on the Facebook. We're going to send an email. Uh, but next week, we're going to switch to 10 a.m. service. Uh, we always do that in the summer. We're always a half hour uh, earlier, half hour offset. Usually it's because those folks are in the building, um, but everybody agreed. We kind of uh, got, you know, got a sense from everybody that it's better in the summer uh, to get in earlier and get out earlier and uh, avoid some of the heat as well. So anyway, 10 a.m. next week, and again, we'll be putting, uh, Michelle's happy about that. That's all that matters. If you're happy, we, he we are here for you. Um, but so, again, we'll be putting that on Facebook. We'll be sending an email. If you, if you know anybody that comes, please let them know. Spread the word. But 10 a.m. next week. Also, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. How about a round of applause for all the dads? Um, so I didn't have time to do it. Maybe toward the end I will. But I was going to uh, make fun of Max. He's not even here yet. I had a picture of him with an aging, uh, you know, the aging app. And he looks like I was going to say I want to pay homage to my grandfather. But he's not. We'll, we'll see about that. But anyway, another, another uh, just mention is, you know, oftentimes in life we can get discouraged. You know, we can kind of get worn out. Anybody ever feel that way? Am I the only one? You know, every now and then, especially now. And so the other day, we had the Wednesday night service, and, and uh, you know, I was going through some things, just like everybody else, just kind of getting weary, and, you know, and had been invested, still invested in some folks' lives, and, you know, their struggles, you know, that's what it's about. When we love people, their struggles affect us. And so I came into the Wednesday night, and I, I kind of felt like, boy, it would be so much easier, like, if I had less relationships, right, less people, you know, and, and you kind of get that, and you know that it's, it's, you know, you'll work your way through it because it's not what Jesus wants. Anyway, I decided I, I really need to be here for the Wednesday night, uh, midweek. And so as I'm walking in, I check the mail slot and I see this envelope. And, uh, you know, I open it up. It's from the Teen Challenge Women. And, you know, sometimes they send us material for events. And I, I'm sitting in that back seat. And as I open it, I realize that they were listening online to the service, the Teen Challenge Ladies. And each one in the women's home wrote a card to thank me for the sermon. And it was, you know, I started to read them and I, I had to, you know, close it right away. I said, I'll, I'll read these when I get home. And so I want to give a shout out to the TC ladies. I love you guys. But, but it, and amen, we can give them a, a hand clap. But also, it's just the Lord reminding us that you don't know when you're invested in people's lives, when you minister, whether you're preaching or no matter what it is you're doing, you don't realize the impact. You know, oftentimes we just see what's in front of us and we don't realize the impact uh, that we've had in others' lives and then the, the ripple effect. And so I just want to encourage you uh, today that it matters. You know, I, I put a quote the other day uh, up on Facebook and it said, um, it said, it is both a blessing and a curse to feel things so deeply. You know, and somebody had posted that sometimes it feels more like a curse. And that's our reality. It can feel that way. But God calls us to feel deeply. God calls us to be deeply invested in the lives of, of those, particularly the part of the church, but in those that he's called to minister to. And in the end, I, f I believe that no matter how difficult as it is, that that's ministry. That, you know, you mourn with those who mourn, you rejoice with those who rejoice. And so that is ministry, entering in to the lives of other people. It's not just coming here and hearing a sermon. It's not just doing a devotion. It's not just showing up to prayer or writing a check or volunteering time. It's walking arm in arm with people through the most difficult part of their lives sometimes. And being there for the best part of their lives to celebrate as well. So I just want to encourage you. Um, last week I heard from so many of you saying that the Lord really spoke to you. And, and i got to say there's nothing more that a pastor wants to hear than to be used as a vessel of God. It's an honor. It's very humbling. And so this morning we're going to continue that. We're going to continue to look at some of the excuses in our lives that keep us from living the full life that Jesus talks about. We need to surrender to Jesus and trust Him for salvation, and we understand that. That's pretty clear to us, 
But we also need to learn to submit to the Spirit daily, moment by moment, to allow God to work in us and through us. So I'm sure you've heard the quote before, don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. Don't let the distractions of the world keep you from a more meaningful life. And so I'm challenging you in this, and Scripture is challenging all of us, because I don't want you to miss out. I believe the Word challenges us because the Lord calls us into a deeper intimacy, because that's, that's for our benefit. That's where we find that relationship with Jesus, and we get to that place when we realize this is, you know, this is the, the pearl of great price. This is the best possible relationship, the best possible life we can live deeply in love and falling deeper in love with Jesus. So I want us to consider what are the things that we tend to allow to become idols in our lives. And so last week was part one. What is your excuse for not putting God first in your life? And we talked about priorities and we read these words of Jesus in Revelation 3, 16 through 20. And I'm going to read them again because this is, this is from Jesus. This is his words. This is his warning and this is his invitation for us to repent, for us to consider our lives. And so in Revelation 3, verse 16, he says, Because you are lukewarm, because you are neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. But you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. What you do not realize is that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Jesus is saying, look, here's your real condition. Here's what you think your condition is, and here's your real condition is. So, again, words of Jesus, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into a real, a real meaningful existence. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I mean, I could, I could, I could make the whole sermon just on that passage right there. Jesus is showing us our condition that we think we have. He's showing us our real condition. He's inviting us to repent. And then he's inviting us ultimately into a greater intimacy. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And so he said, being a Christian, it means listening to the counsel of Jesus above all else. And I started, you know, a couple weeks ago when I preached and I said, you know, the invitation and we were talking about, you know, racism and justice, but it, it applies to everything. When you come here, it shouldn't matter what you think what you know, what you feel, what you've been told, what your parents told you, what your culture told you. It should matter what is the word of God saying to each of us. And Jesus rebukes us and corrects us because he loves us. And so he asks us to be thoughtful and sincere and repent or commit to change. Then we can have greater and greater intimacy with Jesus that changes our heart, which then changes our actions. A lot of people change their actions but leave their heart the same. And so we began looking at four reasons we don't put God first and what the Bible says. Unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear. And so this morning I'm going to wrap up busyness and move on to sin and fear. But if you could stand, we're going to transition now to worship. And so Father, I pray that you have your way here in this place. Lord, that you... Help us to realize and internalize that worship is not the words we sing only, but it is the words we sing as a result of the posture of our heart is an overflow of our love for you, of our adoration, our awe, our fear of you. And so, Father, enter into this place, enter into our hearts, have your way, Holy Spirit, every heart, Every mind, Father, help us to be submitted to you. Let this not just be words, not just external action, but again, change our hearts. Help the posture of our hearts be one of humility. Help us to bow down at your feet and worship you, Jesus. We love you and we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
As um, Pastor was saying, um, there's so many things in this world that bide for our attention that, that draw us away from him, the, the best thing, the good thing. And that there is no goodness in us apart from him. And this song basically says, um, it's a cry out to him, the Lord to help me. To bind me to you. For we can't do it on our own. And uh, our wandering hearts tend to leave him and, and depart from him and, and seek other idols. So we ask God to, to help us, to bind us to him. Lord Jesus, we pray that you remove the distractions, Father, that you help us to forget about yesterday and to forget about what we need to do later today and to be here now, to enter into your presence, to allow your spirit to overwhelm us, to prepare us so that our hearts are softened and your word would penetrate because we don't want to leave here the same way we came in. Lord, and only you have the power to change hearts, minds, eternities. And so have your way. We invite you, each one of us, God, to have your way in our lives, in our hearts, in this place, in this church, so that we can go forward and be salt and light where you have us. Father, we love you. Our only hope is in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. So just as, as sort of a recap, the four reasons we looked at, this unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear, you know, none of these things sort of exist without being interdependent on the other. They're certainly all uh, somewhat connected. Uh, the, you know, fear, sin, busyness, unbelief, they're all related. And we said that when we talk about unbelief, we're not necessarily talking about lack of belief in God. Uh, you know, most of this message is, is obviously for those of us who've accepted Christ. And so I'm assuming there's, there's that initial belief. But I'm talking about an everyday practical trust. You go from, you know, sort of belief as a noun to trust as a verb, making it active in our lives. And so we said practical unbelief in Jesus is, is a turning away from him to seek satisfaction in other things. And trust, or if you like this definition, I would say a trust is applied belief, right? That's another way to look at it, is, is coming to Jesus for the satisfaction of our needs and longings. So understanding ultimately, you know, and I've said this before again and again, but will people say to me, you know, does God answer prayer? And I say, yes, absolutely. He's answered every single prayer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. He's the source. He's the hope. He's the comfort. He's the promise. He's eternity. The answer to every prayer, the answer to everything that, that every ill we have in society, every ill I have in my heart is the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so how we apply that, how we live that out in our lives is the process is, is sanctification. It's becoming more and more like him. So we said belief is not just an agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite in the heart which fastens on Jesus for satisfaction. And I love that. I read that definition somewhere. But it is an appetite in the heart which fastens on to Jesus for ultimate satisfaction. When we hear, he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes shall never thirst, we understand that. We understand that deeply, that Jesus is the source of every longing we have. And then we talked about busyness in the worldly sense and busyness in a religious sense. Really the same thing, but just one has a, a Christian stamp on it. And one, in, in some sense, is more insidious because the religious busyness, which still distracts us from primary things, we can think that that's ministry. And so last week we left off with the book of Haggai written to people like us. People like us who if you ask them, they would say, yes, God must be first. They understood and they would have professed that God is first in their lives and yet they had drifted away from that truth. And so because they had drifted away from that truth, they lived like many of us do with misplaced priorities. And so Haggai was sent to help God's people get their priorities straight. 
I don't know about you, but I need my priorities straightened several times a day. Not even daily, but several times a day. It's easy to get off track. And so we read, we're going to read again, Haggai 1, 2 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. In other words, God's saying, look, the folks, the folks are saying they're in a waiting. They're not yet ready. They have some things to accomplish first before they shift their priority to God. Any of us relate to that? Any of us say, well, you know, I got some things going on. Once I get those things squared away, then I'm going to really narrow that focus to my spiritual life. So the prophet's saying, this is what the Lord says. These people say the time has not yet come. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? In other words, God's saying, you know, when you look at that, and I touched on it briefly last week, when he uses that phrase, paneled houses, just like, you know, you see the crown molding and the finishing touches, and they weren't just houses, they were beautiful houses. And they weren't just houses that were finished, that were structurally sound, that were safe. They weren't just shelters like that. They were, they were shelters that every little, you know, every fine little detail was complete. So they're making the point to say, look, you had the time to not only build what you needed, but you had the time to do what you wanted. And you decided to make God secondary. And so verse 5 says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. And I think, you know, all scriptures God breathed, right? But when it's the word of the Lord through a prophet, when it's the words of Jesus, we ought to pay particular attention. And this speaks to us all this time later. Directly to our hearts. It doesn't change. This should, this should speak to us the same way it spoke to them. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. No, you know, the same thing that we had said earlier when Jesus says, you know, be sincere, be earnest. Be thoughtful. Don't, you know, go around like the world does and not really give any thought to this stuff and just kind of, you know, react, wake up and react to this and react to that and just kind of bounce around. But stop. Consider. And then he says, kind of after he's asking us to consider, he's going, look, verse 6, you've planted much but harvested little. A lot of spin in your wheels, a lot of activity. But what do you have to show for that ultimately? What do you really have? You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on your clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages just to put them in a purse with holes in it. Then this is what the Lord Almighty says. Again, give careful thought to you. He's going, look, you're doing all these things, but at the end of the day, they're counterproductive. They're not accomplishing anything. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never had enough. See, Haggai was speaking to the Jews who'd returned to Jerusalem. They were living in captivity in Babylon. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple about 70 years earlier. And the Jews returned from exile, and they faced this task of rebuilding. And so the first group who returned, they made some attempts. They, you know, clear some of the debris. They lay the foundation for a second temple. And in fact, if you look, the Samaritan neighbors offered to join the work. But the Jews refused them. So the Samaritans threatened the workers. They sent men to Persia to lobby against the Jews. The work came to the halt. Years passed. Jerusalem came to life again. Houses were built. Stores open. Commerce established. Fields planted. Crops harvested. Life began to get back to normal. Dare I say the new normal. Anybody sick of these phrases? These new. Social distancing is an oxymoron. Right? Social. You can't. You can't be social. I get it. I get it. I understand what we're doing. I'm just saying. All this stuff, right? It's, it's frustrating. So these people, they were, they were in a, a new normal. They were in a sense of like they were trying to get back to normal. They were trying to get back to what they knew. But there was one major problem. Israel got used to life without the temple. These people who if you would have asked them, they would have said, yes, we should put God first. But they did all their other stuff. And you know, how many of us know that when you stop focusing on all your other stuff and you keep going, well, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the God stuff. But let me, let me, and then eventually, eventually you don't even realize, eventually you forget, eventually you get used to living without Christ as the center of everything. Because you've been focused on your own pursuits for so long that it's become that new normal, it's become 
the default if we are if we understand that. I think if we're honest, I think a lot of times we check the right boxes. We come to church when our kids don't have sports and it's not football season or the weather's nice out. I think I pretty much just upset everybody in the room. If I didn't offend you in that, give me your status, I'll offend you too. We write a check here and there, we volunteer. We feel really good about that. But in reality, are we living without the temple? In our whole lives, if we look at our whole lives, what's the center? And look, this is, and again, I, you know, I, I keep saying this is not me with a message for you. This is the word of God with a message for all of us. You don't think I have to look at my life and continue to kind of auto-correct, like, is Jesus the center? And then, and then our default, we want to go, yeah, of course he is, but is he really? Is he really? I mean, I know that's the gut reaction. I know it's the Christian thing to say, but is he really? Because a lot of times in my life, I have to look and I say, no, nah, he's, he's really not. And if we're not honest enough to evaluate and we can't admit when things are wrong, when things are off, how are we going to correct? And if we can't listen to the words of the prophet, to the words of the Lord through the prophet, and we don't let that penetrate our hearts, and that doesn't cause us to be uncomfortable, you know, before you change something, the reason, the impetus for change is because there's, there's some need to change. And 99% of the time, what causes that need to change is you're uncomfortable. Sometimes we, we need to change because we're too comfortable. But, but ultimately, right, that's the same thing. It's, it's keeping us away from the Lord. So Haggai appears on the scene, and he has one prevailing message. Now's the time to rebuild the temple. Forget about everything else. Now is the time. Today is the day to make the temple, to make Jesus the center of your life again. Message to speak to each one of us. You know, I said the other day when we were talking about the justice and the race and all that, uh, that, you know, this message is, is for each of us individually. But I think sometimes, you know, we hear things uh, and, and we don't hear them as just us. We say, oh, I, boy, my wife needs to hear that. Or, oh, oh, boy, do I know a guy that needs to listen to this message. Or I'm going to share this one with my friend. He's got to And that's true and that's good. But you know what? What's the word of God saying to you, to me? Because it, it should penetrate. This was a message of priority. This was a message saying, put first things first. The temple was the center for worshiping God. It was the heart and soul of Old Testament religion. Although God is everywhere, the temple was the one place on earth where God dwelled in a special sense. So literally, for the temple to lie in ruins was to neglect the worship of God. And it was a testimony for everyone around that they had misplaced priorities. My life and your life is a testimony for everyone around. Does that person really love Jesus? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delve a little bit more into that later. But this was an embarrassment to God. And so Haggai's message was blunt. He wasted no words. Haggai ran around like Gary White on a construction, proge- pro- uh, blah, blah, blah. construction project. With a hard hat and a tool belt walking around the site, bellowing out orders. No, I'm just kidding. And his first, first, first thing, stop making excuses. The Lord of the host says this. These people say, the time has not come for the Lord to be rebuilt. Stop making excuses. That's the first point he's trying to make. Your stuff's done. Stop making excuses. Stop coming up with reasons. They intended to build God's house. They just hadn't got around to it. If you would have asked them about it, they would have probably said, I am for building the temple. In fact, I'm going to start a GoFundMe for the temple repair. Right? Uh, It's a great cause. But, you know, I think God wants us to take care of our own families first. And times are hard and jobs are scarce. And so we're going to pray about it some more. And eventually we know we're going to build the temple. Or, you know, I'm going to, I'll donate to the temple building project. But right now, you know, I I don't have a lot of time. Oh, you know, well, maybe I'll let you know if maybe I can find like an hour, you know, a month I can donate to the temple project. What did they do? They made excuses. Benjamin Franklin said this, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses who was ever good at anything else. 
It's easy to make excuses when we don't want to obey God. I mean, it is. It's easy to find rational justification for not doing what he wants us to do. The time's not right. I've got family responsibilities. My kids need me when things settle down at work. The first step to putting first things first is to admit our responsibility. The second thing, closely aligned with excuse making, is a selfish mindset that permeates everything. You know, you can look at little kids, and they're, you know, cute little angels, and they, you, you look at them, and what do they do? You give them two toys. You think there's two kids, and you give them two toys, and they go, oh, look, there's two of us, there's two toys. Here, you take this one, and I'll take this one. No, one word. What do they say? Mine. Right? Just, that's the default. Selfishness. Mine. Or you, one kid takes the better one, and, like, we gotta, we gotta learn to do the right thing. We don't have to be taught to do the wrong thing. And you see it right away. It's as plain as day. We know how to do the wrong thing. We know how to be self-centered. And so Haggai challenged the people's selfish behavior. The word of the Lord came through Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this lies in ruins? The word is, is it a time for you to continue to focus on all your stuff when you've neglected the primary thing in your life? That's the word. That's the whole the whole thrust of this message. These homes were not in process. There were no weeds growing. They were, they were not unfinished foundations. Their homes were complete, and the temple was non-existent. Now, this is not an attack on riches or big houses or having a nice home. None of that. There's nothing wrong with having a nice home. What's wrong is to have a nice home while God's house lies in ruins. What's wrong is the pursuit of everything for you while you neglect the word of God and, the, and, the, and being obedient to him and the call of God and what he wants from your life. What's wrong is when we spend all our money on selfish needs while ignoring the things of God. What's wrong is when we spend our best hours, our best talents on our own pursuits and we leave the things of God undone. Because that is an indictment of misplaced priorities. And again, as I said, it's very easy to drift away from God's agenda to our own. It's the default. And if we give no thought to how we are living, if we're not thoughtful, if we don't examine then we're just going to live for ourselves. It's natural. And that's what happened to the Jews that Haggai addressed. But here's the thing. As a consequence of their excuse making, of our excuse making, of our selfish living, the people in Haggai's day, they experienced hardship. He continues, now the Lord of the host says this, think carefully about your ways. You've planted but harvested little. You eat but never had enough. You drink but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with holes in it. They sowed plenty of seed, but there was a drought and the crops didn't yield as much. They had active lifestyles, but they weren't experiencing satisfaction. Does this ring true to us? You know, we have more ways to entertain ourselves and more. I, somebody else said the other day, do you have Hulu? And I'm like... I don't know. I think so. I don't know. We got, uh, you know, Apple TV. I, I can't keep track. I don't know. You got like, it seems like every day there's another, you know, service or another way to entertain or another something that comes out. And, you know, there's more movies and more, you know, audio books. And there's all these things we can do. And we can, we can take, you know, if people say, oh, there's only 24 hours in a day. If there was 48 hours in a day, we'd fill it. Our problem is that we don't have enough time. Our problem is we have just enough time to do the things we want to do. And not enough time to do anything else. And so we labor and we show no profit. We spin our wheels. So Haggai points out a sobering reminder. Listen, listen to this. What happens in our heart affects every area of our lives. And so if we push God out of the center of our heart, we will suffer in every single area of our lives. And sometimes it'll take a while, and we try to numb the pain, and we try to ignore it, and we try to stay sufficiently distracted, and there's all kind of ways we can do that. But deep down inside, when we're alone, we have a deep longing because we've pushed God out of the center of our lives, and we're suffering. See, it's God who controls the rain and the harvest It's God who has the power to withhold blessing. 
Put his house first and he will bless you. Jesus said the same thing. Seek first the kingdom of God as his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. See, blessings come through obedience. Twice Haggai instructed the people to consider your ways. To give careful thought to. And so we need to do some serious self-examination before the Lord. Socrates wrote famously, the unexamined life is not worth living. Evaluation is a good thing. That's why teachers give tests. It's why employers hold job reviews. But oftentimes we don't evaluate the most important thing, things in our lives. When's the last time you stopped and gave yourself a spiritual assessment? I remember being at a men's retreat. And I'll never forget this. And, and the, the, the teacher, he you know, was speaking to all these men and he said, you know, has anybody had a, a review at work, a performance review? And everybody raised their hand. And he said, when was the last time you went home and asked your wife and kids how you were doing as a husband? Must have been a thousand guys. Nobody raised their hand. He said, so we have all these metrics. We have all these reviews of the things that are secondary, but yet in primary things in life and being a, a dad and being a, a husband, we don't, we don't even stop and evaluate that oftentimes. We just kind of coast. We hit autopilot. And I'll tell you why. I've never forgot that. And we do the same thing spiritually. We kind of coast and we hit autopilot. And we have all these school and job and all these examinations everywhere else. Why? To gauge our progress. But in the most important things of our lives, we don't examine. And I think, I, I think for me, I'm going to be honest, I don't know about you, but for me, maybe the reason I don't examine is because maybe I don't like the grade I would get. If I ask my wife, hey, you know, give me an A or an F being a husband. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Don't do it, honey. <laughs> if I would ask my kids, hey, you know, how, what can I do to be a better dad? I might be afraid of their response. But if I really care about those things, if those things are important to me, shouldn't I ask those questions? Shouldn't we ask those questions? Every day we need to evaluate how we live, how we use our talents, how we spend our time and money, who we choose as friends, what we set as goals, what are we going to go, what are we going to do. And if God's not first in our lives, guess who removed him from his rightful place? It wasn't all the busy stuff that came along. It wasn't circumstance or situation. It was us. It was us. The failure to make constant corrections each day is like a pilot who does not make slight course adjustments in flight. Seems like something can be a little off, right? You see, you see it with lines, right? You draw a piece of line on paper. You draw a straight line. You draw another line. It could be, you, you almost can't, you look and you don't even see the difference, but as time goes on, as it, as it extends, what happens? Further and further and further away until we're so far off course that the enemies convince us we'll never find our way home. And the Word of God says, this is the compass, this is the map. Center your life on Jesus Christ. And this is what happens when first things are first and God is first in our hearts. We are active in the right things. Haggai 1.8. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and then I will be pleased with it, and I will be glorified, says the Lord. You see, in all of life, there's a time to talk, and there's a time to act. There's a time to consider, but then there's a time to do. We get stuck in the thinking and the considering, and we get away from the acting and the doing. And those who put first things first are doing the right things. They're spending time with God daily. They're serving people. They're honoring God with their time, talents, and resources. And then what happens? What, what's the ultimate, the chief end of man? I think Jamie just preached on it Wednesday. God is glorified. Why should the temple be built? That God may be glorified. When God isn't first, we become indifferent to His glory. When God is first revealing His glory, when God revealing His glory is first in our minds, everything we think, say, and do is to honor God and bring credit to Him. And finally, when the people obeyed God's sent word, chapter 1, verse 13, this is the ultimate blessing. This is the ultimate blessing. When the people obeyed God's sent word, I am with you.
I am in your midst. You have my presence. When God is first, he blesses us. And the ultimate blessing of God is his manifested presence in our lives. And so if he seems distant to you, perhaps your priorities have gotten mixed up. And I would encourage you because I know for sure that if you put God first, you will experience a new awareness of his presence. And that is a true blessing. We have two ways ultimately we can live our lives. We can put ourselves first or we can put God first. Listen, if I ask my wife to give me a report card on putting myself first, I'd get an A+. No question about that one. I'll test out of that one. I don't even need to get evaluated. I'll just, I'll just ace the test. We're really, really good at putting ourselves first. We're really, really good about making everything in the world, everything in our little world about us. And you know what? And I got to tell you, and I'm just, I'm just telling you honestly, I wish, I wish words could convey my heart more, but I tried for most of my life to put myself first to the extreme. And I would like to say, you know, every time I chose pleasure and every time I chose what I wanted in every instance and every time I manipulated everybody I was with to do what I wanted every time and even made them think that it was, you know, I, you know what do you guys think? I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want. I'm just, I'm just playing a game. And every time I got my will, my will, my will, you'd think I'd go, this is great. I'm the king of my own castle. This is great. I'm everything I've, I want. But you know what? When you're there, you look around and you go, why do I still feel so empty? Why do I still feel all alone? Why do I still feel so deeply unsatisfied when everything I thought I ever wanted has been given to me? But I'm still hungry and I'm still thirsty. And yet I think I'm rich and I think I'm, you know, I'm all this, all this stuff, spiritually speaking, I think I got it all together. And we have to fa- come face to face with Jesus where he says, you're poor and you're pitiful and you're wretched and you're naked. We can say, no, I'm not, Lord, no. And we can make excuses. Oh, we can say, I am, Lord. I am, and I'm so aware of that. So save me, help me. Help me remove all the, all the idols, all the distractions. Even right now, God, we pray. We pray right now in the middle of this sermon. Because it's your power. There's nothing I can say. It's your word. You know our hearts. You know who we are. Help us. We're naked and wretched before you. We're pitiful before you. We put everything else before you. We make excuses and we even make them sound good. And then at the end of the day, we're alone and distant. We're weary and broken and hopeless and helpless. Meet us, Jesus, in that place. You know the hearts of every person here, God, and I pray. Father, I pray that you would that you would reach out and that you would touch us in a special way, God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. She says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but come from the world. Doesn't say don't enjoy the world. Doesn't say don't appreciate the beauty of the world. Doesn't say run away to escape the world. But don't love it. Don't make it the ultimate object of your affection. Why? Because everything in the world, and I love how it goes from everything in the world, the cravings, the lust, you know, that's just desires. That's not your sexual lust. That's the desires. That's everything we see we want. And the boasting of what he has and does. Because, and I remember uh, Andy Stanley once said, he said, I wonder what I would buy if I didn't know what anyone else had. Because, like, if you can't show it off and brag about it, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, if you are the last person on earth, nobody cares what you drive. It doesn't matter. What's the point? So you've you got to be able to boast about what you have and what you do. Because if you can't boast about it, then it doesn't mean anything. 
It doesn't mean anything. So Jesus is saying, that doesn't come from the Father. That's not a spiritual way to view life. That comes from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. See, these four things, they're all interrelated. They're all tied to our sinful nature, our sinful inclinations. And so we're going to give a definition that will work for our purposes for sin. And it's accurate, but it could be expanded and explained deeper. But here's my definition of sin for our purposes. Sin is a declaration of independence from God. That's what sin is. It's saying, I know better. So you could say, well, God, I'm going to agree with you on 99% of stuff. But on that one thing, I know better. And you're like the rich young ruler. And I was talking about this the other day. This sad, it's like the saddest story in the Bible to me. Because here's this guy who encounters Jesus and Jesus confronts him. And Jesus lets him build himself up. He lets him boast. And then Jesus hits him right between the eyes and he says, well, there's one thing. And that's for him. You know, our one thing might be different, but we all have that one thing. And Jesus goes, that one thing, give that up and follow me. And the guy thinks about it and then he goes, no. And the Bible says he went away sad. And I think that that's, that's the, I mean, we don't, we don't hear about him again. But I just think how tragic to encounter Jesus and Jesus says, come and, and walk with me. And the alternative, we choose the alternative, which is to walk away sad. And I get that the world does that. I mean, they don't know. But we do that in the church. The church does that. Jesus says, come follow me. And, and we, we come to church and we pretend that we're answering them. But really deep down inside what we've said is, no. No, Jesus, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then we wonder why we've walked away sad. We wonder why we have this deep, profound sadness because we've declared our independence from God. And that's the root of all sin. It's wanting to be God. It's wanting to decide what is best. It's having the Word of God and the Spirit of God in us and the community of God in us to testify. And it's what we think and what we believe and what we feel. And when those things come against each other, we go, yeah, what I think and what I feel. I'm going to make excuses to go this way. And I'm going to make excuses not to obey the Word of God. And so we live in disobedience and we wonder why we have all this turmoil. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that it, he had made, and it was very good. It was all good, and then sin enters and turns everything upside down. If we don't understand, if we don't have a, a, a full understanding of what sin is, there's people nowadays, uh, you know, post-postmodern probably, that they don't even have a, sin is not even a thing. They don't even have like a, they don't even... They don't even accept that sin is a, is a real definition. Like, for, for my generation, like, at least we understood that. Now there's people who just reject the notion of sin. And so we live in a world with competing preferences. And all everybody can say is the way they think and feel is priority. But what happens when you have two people who have competing priorities and there's no objective truth, there's no objective morality? Sin is saying there is an objective truth, there is an objective morality, and it's independent of us. And we can accept it or we can reject it. But don't reject it and pretend you've accepted it because you're only fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. There's a sin of omission and a sin of commission. There's transgression and there's idolatry. There's not doing what God commands us to do and there's doing what God forbids us to do. That's how it's described in the Bible. 1 John 3, 4, it's a transgression of the law of God. In Deuteronomy and Joshua, it's considered rebellion. It's defined as rebellion against God. Listen, I could, I could preach my whole sermon on sin. But let's just say this. God hates sin. Jesus died a torturous, horrible death to overcome that which we could never overcome. The Holy Spirit cannot dwell where there is sin, and nothing puts out the fire of God in our lives like unconfessed and unrepentant hearts. And we've said, and this theme comes up every time I preach, every time Pastor Jamie preaches, if we don't realize we're a sinner, then we don't realize we need a Savior, and that means our faith is an attempt to add Jesus to the rest of our life. 
And whenever you have an additive, you can either take it or leave it when it's convenient. And I'm afraid that our churches are filled with people who think Jesus is an additive. Who think Jesus is just something you can add and then take away. But he cannot be an ingredient. He must mean everything to you. And sin is saying our way is better than his way. That's what sin is. The ultimate exercise of pride. And the Bible says it leads to death. 1 Peter 5, 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Let me say that again. And all of you clothe yourself. That means it's, it's part of who you are. It's everything emanates from that. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For what? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. He's opposed actively to those who reject him. But those of us who are stumbling along in humility are given grace. It's things we can do in our lives to avoid living in ongoing sin. And we're all going to sin. We're all going to commit sin. We're not perfect. But there's a difference between fighting against active sin in your life and surrendering. There's a difference between fighting against you know, sin in your life and, and, and saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to battle this. I, I need prayer. I need accountability. I, I don't want to live like this and going, ah, nobody's perfect. Coming up with spiritual excuses. Be open to teaching and rebuke, number one. Not just from a pastor or a leader, from the Bible. And your whole life, if we're not open to teaching and rebuke, what are we here for? I mean, why read the Bible? So you can, you, can, you know, repeat, repeat scripture so you can, you know, memorize and let people know that you memorize scripture? Is that? Really, what's, what's the point of scripture if we don't allow it to teach us? Be accountable and have transparent relationships. And again, I've said before, that doesn't mean everybody in your life should know everything, but there should be one or two people that you trust, that you're walking through life with, that you can you know, confess your sins to one another. It's a spiritual principle. Why? Because all the stuff that you keep inside and you say, ah, if they knew that, they, would, they wouldn't love me. Nobody can know about that stuff. The enemy uses that. The enemy uses that to make you feel like you're irredeemable. Now, if I were to say to you, do you think Jesus' blood has the power to cover everything? You would say yes. But do you live as though that's true in your life? Do you understand that that means even that ugly thing that you never want to talk about, that it covers even that? And so we keep all this sin hidden, and it destroys us. And the enemy tells us that we're, you know, we're, we're never going to be like those other Christians, and you know, we're, 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 we can never you know, be saved, that Jesus can never change our hearts. Meanwhile, what happens if you have that one friend, and you say, hey, pray with me, you know, this, I got this struggle. That's in the light. The enemy can't use it. It's confessed. That's a spiritual principle there. It's not a, it's not a priestly confession. It's the principle of having a relationship with somebody where now it's in the light. Now you have accountability. Now you have somebody that can pray. And we know sin's born in our mind before it becomes an act. So the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Feed the spirit, man. I think every single time I've ever preached, I've said this quote. Leonard Ravenhill, I love it because there's so much there. A sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. What's his point? His point is sometimes we just focus on, I want to stop sinning, I want to stop sinning. I want to get away from that pattern. I want to get away from that pattern. And in recovery, we talk about you don't just stop doing the bad things, you start doing the good things. So, yes, we want to stop sinning, but we don't have the ability. And so what happens? We commit to prayer. We commit to intimacy with Jesus. And he does that work in us. The, the greatest work the enemy does isn't necessarily to get you to sin. It's to keep you away from God. And it's the keeping you away from God that causes you to continually live in sin. The enemy doesn't care how you're distracted. He doesn't care if it's religious stuff that distracts you. 
He just cares that you're distracted. He just cares that something in your life is keeping you from sitting at the feet of Jesus. doesn't care what it is. doesn't matter. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he attempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. For the sake of time, I'm not going to pull that apart, but write it down, read it, study it. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation exceeds you except what is common to man. In other words, we think, oh, well, if, I, if anybody only knew, like, look, there's, there's no new way to sin. You haven't invented a new way to sin. And your stuff doesn't line up. I know we get to think, oh, I'm the worst of the worst of the worst. Compare it to some of the people in the Bible. Sin is sin. It's a separation from God. It's a hardening of our heart. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Sin is sin, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Scripture doesn't lie. That's a promise. That's not my promise. That's a promise from the Word of God. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. Is he going to force us through that way out? No. But he's going to provide it. But what we like to do is we like to blame everybody else. Well, my circumstance, my situation, you know. And then our hearts get hardened. And our excuses, we're so used to hearing our excuses that we think they're the truth. You ever tell a lie so many times that you forget if it's a lie or not? Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today. Church, are we encouraging one another? Are we praying for one another so none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? And here's another promise, Romans 6, 11 through 14. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, For you are not under the law, but under grace. How do you see yourself? How do you see your life? How do you see your body? How do you see your your thoughts and your actions? Do you see yourselves primarily as a vessel? As an instrument of God? I mean, can you imagine that? If you just stop and, and, and just think about that, just ponder that. The Bible says we're an ambassador. The Bible says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. All these things, we're dispensers of God's grace. God works through us. We're vessels. And we can either, we can either refuse to examine our lives. That's one way. I mean, you can leave here and worship team, you can come up. I'm going to get to fear next week. But we can refuse to examine ourselves. We can say, you know what, I don't even want to evaluate. You can do that. You can leave here and do that. Or you can evaluate and you could say, well, you know, I've looked at my life. I've looked at some things. And the rich young ruler, he had a lot of things going for him. I mean, he listed those things. And Jesus didn't disagree. I mean, read it. Read the the story. I think it's in Mark where it says Jesus looked at him and had a great love for him. And I love that. I love when, when Mark tells the story because I just picture that. And I picture how many times in my own life that Jesus looked at me and had that great love for me. You know, that gaze, that face of Jesus. And here I am, like the rich young ruler, listening to all the things. But Jesus, I'm doing this right, and I'm doing this right. And ask the people. I mean, they'll tell you, Jesus. I have a good reputation in the community, all this stuff. And Jesus just sits there and listens and shakes his head. Goes, man, there's, there's one thing, Brian. There's this one thing. 20 years I've been, there's this one thing. Are you ready now? 
give up that one thing. And again, I can just ignore. I don't want to have the conversation, Jesus. Okay. It's patient. Eventually, though, time's going to run out. Or I can say, you know, I hear you, Jesus, but, you know, I'm good, man. I think I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. We can do that, too. Oh, we can say there is nothing. There's nothing in this life. Nothing that is worth me walking away with a profound sadness because I can't answer Jesus' invitation to give up that one stupid thing. I did it for so long. I, I think I got baptized in like 95. You know, I, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And for so long, for so long, I just, you know, I had one thing after another after another. And if I gave him one, I thought that bought me time. Jesus, you know, come talk to me in a year because I already gave you something last year. And we're not scheduled for me to give up another sin yet, Jesus. And I almost destroyed my life and the life of everybody I loved because I didn't want to give up my sin. And maybe you think, well, you know, my sin's not making that much of a mess. That's too bad for you. I feel bad. That's sad. Because if you can keep on sinning and there's no external mess, maybe you're going to do it longer than you need to. But there is an internal mess. And your internal mess is going to affect your family and the people you love. And it's going to neglect your ministry. You can't minister. How are you going to minister? Most of the time you can't minister because you're so caught up in your sin. You so believe in the lies of the enemy that you say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm so unworthy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put myself on the shelf. Because I'm going to believe the lies of the enemy. I mean, God's just looking for people who say, here I am, Lord, use me. No, here I am, use me once I get my talents, once I get my abilities, once I get my life lined up, once my resources are in order. No. No, that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for people who say, search my heart. Look at every single part of me. Go those places that, that I haven't wanted you to go. And I'm willing. I'm, I'm not able. I'm not able, but I'm willing to let you take from me everything you need to take. Because I know what you give is going to be so much greater. So, Father, as we close now and the worship team plays, Father, I pray that each of us Understand, God, our lack of ability. But we put our trust and faith actively in you and we say, Lord, take from me that which you want to take. I am unable, God. Open my hands. Soften my heart. Give me eyes to see, spiritual eyes. Remove the excuses and the blinders and the lies. All the stuff the enemies told me that's not true. And let me leave here with a commitment, with a renewed commitment. Please, please stand. Let us leave here with a renewed commitment to follow you, not with 99%, but with 100%. And realize that we're not losing, we're not giving up, but we're gaining. We're gaining intimacy with you, we're falling deeper in love with you. And we're, we're going to stop building cisterns that don't hold water. We're going to stop eating and never being filled and drinking and never feeling full. Lord God, we love you, we thank you that your word shakes us, convicts us, challenges us, makes us feel bad sometimes. Your word says that you love us, and because you love us, you rebuke us, you correct us, you teach us. Father, my prayer is that we remain teachable so you can have your way, not our way, your way in this church, in our lives, in our communities, in our families. Father, help us men, fathers, to stand up 
to be the priests of our home, the men you've called us to be, to be examples, protectors, providers, encouragers, prayer warriors, examples, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. Jesus, what a Savior, what a friend, what a friend, lifter of the lowly, God, you meet me where I am. Never known a love like yours. 
you thankful that your love knows no borders and knows no walls. We thank you that we'll never know a love like yours. Thank you that you love us in a way that we can never fully comprehend. And God, today on Father's Day, we thank you that you are a good, good father. That you are the best father. You are our heavenly father. In Jesus' name.